You're listening to audio from Redeemer Anglican Church in the urban heart of Richmond, Virginia. We are a parish committed to gospel formation for missional presence through seven essential practices. Telling the biblical story, embracing a new identity in Jesus, finding belonging in the church community, cultivating virtue through redemptive habits, understanding our context in this current cultural moment, laboring in renewed vocations for the common good, and reordering our imaginations through beauty in the arts. To learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. Our first passage comes from the book of 1 Peter, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, and can be found on page 1016 in your pew Bibles. And as always, if you do not own a Bible, please take one um, as a gift from Redeemer. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord. All rise for the gospel. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. This morning's reading is from John chapter 10, verses 11 through 18, found on page 896 in your pew Bibles. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. 
And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Be seated, please. Once more, good morning, church. Good morning to you all. Uh, for those of you who are new and visiting for the first time, welcome. It's good to see you. Glad you're here. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Dan. Very grateful to serve here as a pastor. Now, today is Pentecost Sunday. Uh, in creation, God makes us. In Christmas, Emmanuel, God is with us. At the cross, God is for us. Jesus offered as a sacrifice, us as a sacrifice for us. But at Pentecost, God is in us. The spirit of Jesus coming to dwell inside of us. Not a generic spark of divinity inside of us, but the spirit of the risen Jesus, the particular, personal, specific spirit of the risen Jesus coming to dwell within us. Uh, Henry Nouwen, the late Catholic theologian, wrote, without Pentecost, the Christ event, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus remains imprisoned in history as something to remember, to think about, to reflect on. But the spirit of Jesus comes to dwell within us at Pentecost so that we can become living Christ in the here and now. And so it's fitting that we conclude this Easter season that we've been walking through as a church family with Pentecost, practicing the resurrection in the here and now and needing the Holy Spirit within us to do so. As we begin, let me say a prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that right now the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Okay, here's the scene, all right? I am in my clerical collar, and I'm walking down the sidewalk on Broad Street down by VCU, and I am carrying a lemonade pitcher full of gasoline, and I'm thinking to myself, I have got to stop doing this, okay? Uh, here's what happened. Um, yesterday, a really lovely young couple here at, in Redeemer got married over at Common House uh, in the downtown area. And as I was driving uh, to go and to officiate the wedding, I realized that I was probably running out of gas. And I say probably because the gas gauge on my 1999 Toyota 4Runner has been broken for a very long time, which means for the past few years, it's been my job to guess how much gas I think I have left in my car. Sometimes I guess right, sometimes I guess wrong. Uh, yesterday was a guess wrong moment, and I ran out of gas on my way to the wedding. Uh, so I'm there thinking like, well, they can't start without me. So um, I kind of like shook the car and tried it again and I got it to start and I made it to the wedding. I was early, I was not late. The wedding went just great, lovely couple. They got married, party, dancing, wine, awesome. It was great. Left the wedding to drive back home and I'm thinking I need to get to the nearest gas station. And at that point, the nearest one is the one at Kroger on Lombardi next to the Lowe's, which by the way, is the worst Kroger in Richmond. Did you not know that? It is, mark that on your like planner. So I, I am driving on my way to Kroger 
and I run out of gas again. And this time I can't get it started. So the car is still coasting down Broad Street and I hop out and I'm kind of jogging next to it to push it. In like, I'm not wearing robes, but I'm in like a suit. And some really kind guys who are on scooters on the sidewalk see me and they very kindly stop their scooters and they get out and they help push. And together we push the the car onto one of those like do not enter wrong way side streets. Um, And we push it like up onto the curb. I thank them, I give them hugs, I turn off the car and I then jog down Broad Street to the gas station at Kroger thinking, I'm gonna buy a little gas can, I'm gonna fill it up with a gallon of gas and then walk back. Turns out they don't sell gas cans anymore, I don't know. So I go inside to the Kroger and I buy a lemonade pitcher because it's the cheapest like liquid receptacle I can find there. I go, I buy half gallon of gas, I fill it up and I'm walking back down Broad Street. Fortunately, my car was not towed. I unscrewed the gas can. I used a pen to like poke open the little safety flap thing and then poured the gas inside. Car started. It works. I made it home safely. Thank you. Somebody clapped. Come on. Yeah. Now here's the thing. I could have called for help. Um, my, like my beloved wife, you know, is with the kids only like six minutes away, <laughs> not very far away. I could have called any of you. I trust you guys. Like, any of you would have come and rescued me if I had called for help. We have AAA. I could have called AAA. I didn't want to. I wanted to figure it out. <laughs> but here's, here's the real point. My gas gauge has been broken for a very long time, which means I'm always guessing how much do I actually have left in the tank. And on this particular Sunday, all that happened yesterday, on this particular Sunday, as this is my last Sunday with you all before I begin a three-month sabbatical, I am realizing I don't know how much I have left in the tank. I'm one of those weird people whose gas gauge is kind of always broken. I never feel like I'm on empty, but I know empty is hypothetically possible, right? (laughs) And so I am so grateful on this particular Sunday that we planned to take a sabbatical in the summer of 2023, and we planned it all the way back in the summer of 2015 before we even moved to Richmond to plant Redeemer. And I'm so grateful that our vestry and our staff and the leadership and our bishop and the leadership of this church has been amenable and agreeable and supportive for our family to take a sabbatical because I don't know how much I have left in the tank. And it's better to stop and rest before you're actually on empty, right? And so if you are one of those people who maybe has the same dysfunction that I do, and you maybe don't always know when you're on empty, then maybe this can be a moment where we learn from each other and we decide that we're gonna practice Sabbath rest before we're on empty so that you don't have to jog down Broad Street with a lemonade pitcher full of gasoline, okay? So here's, it gets a little bit weirder. Over a year ago, I decided that we would do, as a church, a sermon series on the book of 1 Peter during the spring of 2023. And at the time, I was not thinking about how 1 Peter concludes with the discussion about the relationship between a pastor and a parishioner. Nor was I thinking about how the last day of this series would coincide with my last day before a 12-week sabbatical. But as this Sunday got closer and I began to study ahead in preparation, I realized how appropriate this text is for all of us on this particular day. The metaphor that the author Peter uses to describe the relationship between a pastor and a congregation is that of a shepherd overseeing a flock of sheep. 
And I was kind of laughing to myself uh, in my office earlier this week going like, this is not a complimentary metaphor for either of us, right? <laughs> like, Peter, couldn't you have said like a tech CEO and, you know, cool hipsters? Like, isn't that a better metaphor for, you know, a pastor in a congregation? No, shepherd and flock, not terribly complimentary. In the first century, shepherds were usually lower young, lower class boys and girls. They were considered untrustworthy, smelly, dirty, uneducated, and probably couldn't get a better job doing anything else. That's why they ended up as shepherds. And I was thinking, that's kind of what we think of pastors nowadays too, right? Like, they're kind of like, like not the sharpest tool in the drawer, and they probably couldn't get a job doing anything else. That's why they're doing this, right? There's that old saying, like, those who can't do, teach. And around seminaries and amongst pastors, the saying just kind of keeps going. Like, those who can't do, teach, and those who can't teach, preach, right? Now, it's not terribly complimentary for you all either. Sheep, while not being as bright as dolphins or chimpanzees, are not, they're not dumb, contrary to popular belief. Sheep can recognize up to 50 other sheep faces, even some human faces. Sheep have good memories. Sheep have been trained to navigate complex mazes. Sheep are highly social animals with emotionally complex and distinct personalities. But the biggest downside to being a sheep is its place in the food chain. Everything eats sheep. <laughs> Sheep are not terribly good at staying alive. They are prey. And when Peter, the author, refers to us as sheep, he is not insulting our intelligence. He is cautioning us about our vulnerability. That's the sheep metaphor. It's a caution against vulnerability, not an insult to your intelligence. Now, all of us have a call to shepherding and a call to being a sheep. And you and I, all of us, move in and out of these roles depending on the situation. Parents, you have a shepherding role over your kids. But when you're with your parents, you're kind of back to being a sheep, which is what makes multi-generational family gatherings so awkward, right? You're like code switching minute to minute, back and forth. Teachers, you have a shepherding role over your students in the classroom, but when you are out of the classroom in the principal's office, what are you? You are back to being a sheep, right? Not your classroom anymore. Small group leaders here at Redeemer. You are, most of you, not ordained clergy, but you do have a shepherding relationship towards those who are a part of your small group. Staff, some of you are ordained, most of you are not, but all of you have a shepherding responsibility towards those in your particular area of ministry. Elders, and I mean that literally and physically, those of you who are further along in years, you have a shepherding responsibility towards the younger members of this church. All of us are also followers, all of us our sheep and members of the flock, when I'm with you, especially when I'm standing in this particular place right now, I am functioning as a shepherd. But when I'm not here and I'm with the bishop, you know what I am? I'm back to being a sheep. All of us move in and out of these roles. And so in this particular text, there's something for all of us here. All of us have something to learn here, not just pastors. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna talk about resurrection shepherding. And, you know, I sort of wanted on my last sermon with you all for, you know, for a while uh, to say, to sort of like mix it up and do something super creative, but this is maybe evidence of the gas tank maybe being a little bit empty. Not too creative, guys. Three points today, okay? And if you're the kind of person that takes notes, here are your categories, all right? Category number one, shepherding is marked by humility. Category number two, shepherding is threatened by suffering. Category three, shepherding is rewarded by glory. So resurrection shepherding is marked by humility, threatened by suffering, and rewarded by glory. I'm going to read the first part of the text once more. 
Peter writes, so I exhort, exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but by being examples to the flock. Peter is describing three key shifts that a shepherd has to make. The first is the shift from compulsion to willingness. The second is the shift from shameful gain to eagerness. And the third is the shift from domineering to being an example. Let me say just a bit more about each one of those shifts. The shift from compulsion to willingness. The idea here is that you don't uh, become a shepherd because someone forced you to do it. God didn't force you to do it. Other people didn't force you to do it. You weren't forced into being a small group leader. You weren't forced onto staff. You weren't forced onto vestry. You weren't forced into ordained ministry. It's a call, and you're to respond willingly. Some of you, uh, like me, may have heard pastors tell stories over the years that kind of put on this sort of like bizarre humility where you end up hearing pastors say things like, oh, I never wanted to be a pastor. In fact, I resisted being a pastor. This is the last job I ever would have wanted to do, but I don't know, just through a series of crazy circumstances, here I am. Oh, well, here we go. It's like I took a wrong turn and ended up in the pulpit. I don't know what happened. Give me a break. It's not how it works. Way too much preparation and intentionality lands you into the role, whether it's the role of an ordained priest or a deacon or a small group leader or a vestry member or a staff member, whatever the shepherding role is, you didn't get there by accident and you're not to be compelled there. You're to go willingly. Which would you rather have? Would you rather have a parent that says, I never wanted kids, but here we are, right? Or a parent that says, I always wanted to be a mother. I always wanted to be a father, right? What kind of parent would you rather have? What kind of shepherd would you rather have? Okay, the shift from from compulsion to willingness. The second is a shift from shameful gain to eagerness. When you think about shameful gain in ministry, you know, it probably brings to mind some pretty crass examples like preachers in sneakers or celebrity pastors who are kind of flying around in jets, right? But there's, and we can all kind of collectively feel some nausea about that. But let's take it just a little bit more subtle, okay? There's also a reputation gain in some parts of the world, and I think Richmond still qualifies as being a part of the South, which means there is a little bit of status gain if you step into a shepherding position. You feel like you might become an important person, maybe a recognized person. And nobody should want to be ordained or step into any position of shepherding leadership because they need the status, because they need the title, they need the recognition. We should all be eager to serve regardless of status. That's the second shift. So from compulsion to willingness, from shameful gain to eagerness. And then the third shift is from domineering to being an example. Domineering kind of leadership or shepherding is aggressive. It's intimidating. It's commanding. It's using the power of the office or the position, whether it's something like being a small group leader or a vestry member or a staff member, or maybe just leading a ministry. You you use the power of the office, the power of the position to enact your will against perhaps opposition from others. Uh, in, in my context, you know, I serve as the rector here. If you're not familiar with that language, rector is old-fashioned language for lead pastor. It's called playing the rector card or playing the lead pastor card. It's playing that card when you hit a decision point and there's maybe some difference in the room and you're saying, look, at the end of the day, I'm in charge. We're going to do things my way. 
I had a chance uh, earlier in life to apprentice under a pastor that I still continue to respect very much, a man named John Yates, who was the rector, lead pastor of the Falls Church Anglican up in Northern Virginia for 40 years. And while I was apprenticing under him, I asked him at some point along the way, hey, John, in 40 years of ministry, how many times did you play the rector card? You know what his answer was? Twice. In 40 years, played it twice where he felt like there was some key decision and even though there wasn't agreement, he felt the need to lead even against opposition. And I thought, you know what? That's probably a pretty good ratio. Play it twice in 40 years. You should play that card as infrequently as possible. Now, Peter sets that kind of domineering posture up against leading by example. So he's not setting it up against being passive. He's setting it up against a different kind of leadership, a different kind of shepherding. Leading by example is when your words align with your personal lifestyle. It's practicing being a sheep towards those who are over you and towards those who are under you. To be an example is to lead with the power of lifestyle, not with the power of the office. Now, if you just pan the camera out for a moment and think about all three of these shifts, you know what the common theme is? They are all a shift from pride to humility. That's the real shift. That's the heart shift that has to happen from pride to humility, which is why Peter keeps going in verses five, six, and seven, and he writes, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to your elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all of your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. This is describing humility towards one another in every direction, up, down, right, left, around, everywhere. Humility in every direction. And you're to do that. All of us are to do that. I'm to do that. Because whose flock is this after all? Peter answers the question in verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God. Not yours. Not shepherd your flock. And so whether your, small, your, your, your flock is your small group or a ministry team that you're leading <clears throat> or a particular area of influence or your own family, it's not yours. Your family isn't yours. Your small group isn't yours. Your area of ministry isn't yours. This parish, not mine. It all belongs to God. And we shepherd as a steward on his behalf. Now, when the shepherd-to-flock relationship is marked by humility in every direction, the results are, according to Peter, and in my experience, I would concur with this, glorious. The results are glorious. When small group leaders shepherd their people willingly and eagerly, when they lead by example, and when small group participants follow with humility, there's health. Everybody wins. When a deacon or a priest gives shepherding oversight to a parish willingly, eagerly, leading by example, and when parishioners follow with humility, the parish is healthy. God is glorified. Everybody wins. And the biggest threat to that whole ecosystem of humility is suffering. The biggest threat to that ecosystem of humility is suffering. And here's why. Peter keeps writing in verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So it's good to just take a moment and pause and remember, who is writing this? This is written by Peter. Peter knows firsthand what it feels like to have the devil attack you personally, to be singled out for attack. Jesus, talking to Peter uh, in one of the gospel accounts, says to him, Simon, Simon, which, by the way, his full name, Simon Peter, he says, Behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. 
but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter says back to Jesus, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus says back to him, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. So Peter and Jesus are having this conversation and Jesus is saying to Peter, the devil, your enemy, has singled you out for attack and he's gonna get you unless I pray for you. But don't worry, don't be afraid. I'm praying for you that you may not fail. And Peter's like, (laughs) Peter says back to him, basically the equivalent of like, you don't have to pray for me. I got this. I'm good. I'm faithful. I'm loyal. You can count on me. And Jesus says, with great gentleness and kindness, I cannot count on you. You're going to fail, right? Peter knew firsthand that he had an enemy who wanted to take him down, to knock him out, to consume him. And he's warning all of this early church in the first century and all of us that we are not immune from direct attack. That can happen to us too. That's the first kind of suffering. The second kind of suffering that Peter has in mind, he writes about earlier in this same letter in chapter 3, verses 8 to 22, where he addresses the reality of suffering persecution for the faith. Again, it's a first century audience. They're a small minority in a giant pagan Roman empire. And suffering, just by its nature, always calls into question the decisions that led us to that point, right? If following Jesus ends up making your life more painful and more uncomfortable, then perhaps this was a mistake. Maybe I should leave the faith, right? We all end up thinking that from time to time. And part of the job of any shepherd, whether it's a small group leader or a priest or a bishop, anybody, is to help suffering sheep understand that suffering for Christ brings union with Christ in his suffering and to help them discover and unearth and experience the strange and mysterious joy that is buried for them there in their suffering. So those are the first two kinds of suffering, suffering from direct spiritual attack, suffering from persecution for the faith. There's a third kind that he has in mind, which is suffering from domineering shepherds that are out for shameful gain. And at this point, it's probably appropriate for us all to just take a moment and hit pause and recognize the reality in the room right now. All of us, many of us, maybe not all of us, but I think most of us, including me, have trauma and wounding from abusive, corrupt, or simply unfaithful church leadership. If you stick around the church long enough, do you know what's gonna happen? You're gonna get hurt by the church. It's just true for everybody. Churches are rarely safe places. Who are we kidding? They're full of people. There's a seemingly unsolvable problem here. And it's the reason why so many people, especially young people, are deconstructing their faith and leaving churches by the hundreds of thousands. This is why the enemy tends to strike at shepherds first. God speaks in an Old Testament book. He writes, or he speaks, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I turn my hand against the little ones. It's a military metaphor. And so because of constant suffering from attack, often shepherds, you know what? Don't want to be shepherds anymore. It's too hard. And sometimes shepherds hurt sheep. And sometimes sheep think that there is a greater threat from the shepherd than there is from the devil. And so after years of chronic hurt, wounding, and disappointment, sometimes sheep don't want a shepherd anymore. And so the shepherd-flock relationship is often a relationship that neither party wants. Nobody wants to shepherd. Nobody wants to be a sheep. And so instead of churches, local parish bodies like this one, 
filled with sheep and shepherds, we end up, this is not the main idea, but it, but it is relevant. Listen, if you can. We end up with celebrity author speakers and online audiences because neither will commit to the other. It's just too painful. And so the internet provides a nice buffer between the two, neither really knowing the other, neither really being able to shepherd or follow or serve, and so neither really being able to hurt the other too badly. Now, at this point, the plane has gone down long enough. It's time to start pulling up, okay? What are we gonna do? How does this tension get resolved? The answer actually goes to looking to one of St. Paul's epistles, epistles in Philippians, where he writes about this ecosystem of humility. How does it actually happen? How do we become it? And he writes, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, that who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That's the humility of Jesus. And so... One of the first things that we must recognize in all of our collective failures at living out this ecosystem of humility between shepherds and sheep is that it's actually the humility of Jesus given to us in the spirit of Jesus at Pentecost that actually enables us to embody and practice that humility up, down, left, right, center, everywhere we go. It's the humility of Jesus that is the resource that must be tapped into, not our own humility, but the humility of Christ. Even further, it's the suffering of Jesus that becomes the resource for us in the midst of our own suffering, and maybe even especially if that suffering happens inside the church. The passage continues in verse eight. Being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so just as the humility of Jesus becomes a resource, a well of humility, of humility that every person, both sheep and shepherd, must tap into, so the suffering of Jesus becomes a well of resource that we all must tap into. It's only in the suffering of Jesus that wounds that are inflicted both outside the church and maybe even especially inside the church can begin to heal. And this is true because... Jesus is not only the good shepherd, which we read about in our gospel lesson just a few minutes ago that Steve read so well, but also because Jesus is, in addition to being a shepherd, a lamb and a sheep himself. When Jesus arrives on the scene, John the Baptist sees him. And what does John the Baptist cry out? He says, look, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus died as a sacrificial lamb as a sheep led to the slaughter. And so in Jesus, all of your wounds are bound up in the wounds of Christ. And in the wounds of Christ, they begin to heal. They're not gonna heal anywhere else. You will never find a healthy enough local church to heal all of the wounds of the places you've been hurt, other place, uh, of all, all the wounds that you've received in other places. So if you're looking to Redeemer as like, oh, this is gonna be the healthy place, not like that other place. Y'all, it's only in the wounds of Jesus that those church wounds get healed. Jesus is also the good shepherd. Yes, he's the lamb. He's also the good shepherd. He knows you. 
You belong to him. There is no more trustworthy shepherd than the kind that dies for sheep. And so as you trust Jesus to be your true shepherd, you can begin to trust slowly and over time the broken, weak shepherds of his church once more. Jesus is both the true sheep and the true shepherd. Here's the point. Listen if you can. Only as both shepherd and flock become like Jesus does a church become healthy. And this happens through the Holy Spirit, which is why we're talking about it on Pentecost. The same spirit of Jesus is inside both the shepherd and the flock. Not two different spirits. We don't need a shepherding spirit and a sheep spirit. It's just the one, just the risen spirit of Christ dwelling in both, the true sheep and the true shepherd. Now, listen, shepherding is marked by humility. It's threatened by suffering, but through the redemption of Jesus in his death and in his glorious resurrection from the dead, it is rewarded by stunning glory. On the other side of suffering is glory. Peter can't go more than a few verses in this particular text without cycling back to that theme of glory. He says it over and over again. In verse one, be a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. Verse four, receive the unfading crown of glory. Verse 10, the God of grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And so Redeemer family, as I'm concluding this sermon and also concluding one season of ministry, and looking forward to a time of rest before beginning a new season of ministry. Let me just step aside and make sure that we're all crystal clear on that. I signed my kids up for another year of school and they're registered for fall soccer. We're coming back, okay? (laughs) I'm taking no job interviews. I'm guest preaching at no churches. We are coming back on the other side of this. But as as we conclude this season together, here's what I want you to hear. Redeemer family, you are glorious. You are burning incandescent with the light of Christ shining in you and shining through you. You are not yet what you will be. Your head does not yet bear a crown and your glory has not yet been fully revealed. But God will restore you and he will confirm you and he will strengthen you and he will establish you. And so my prayers for you, dear church, while I practice Sabbath rest over these next 12 weeks, is that you will receive the spirit of the risen Jesus to dwell within you, to make you both a sheep and a shepherd, and to know when to be which one. And through the spirit of Jesus given at Pentecost, may you practice both of these well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you have come to us in Jesus to be both the true sheep and the true shepherd. And through the spirit of the risen Christ, will you come and dwell within us and make us to be both of these things and to practice both of these roles well so that we might truly, truly be your church. Amen. Thank you for listening. To connect with our team or to learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. We look forward to knowing you. Go in peace.